0: And we ask by the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that you would quicken dead hearts, Father, that you would renew our minds, and we pray that all of these things would be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat, and as you do... uh, excuse or dismiss Hubtown kids. And so if you are ages three to five, you're going to go to the Blue Station today on my left. If you're ages six up to fifth grade, you're gonna to exit to my right, your left. We do this every week. I hope that you anticipate it and maybe even enjoy it. We're gonna give you a preview of what kids Grace Station will be learning this morning. They're gonna be dancing, discovering What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. I won't give any comment on that, although I think it's fitting as we consider the, the current climate of our nation. The great sin that is marring our people. Rejecting and ignoring God. But we'll move away from Hubtown Kids and we'll get on to something that I think you'll enjoy a little bit more. Today's sermon is about money. I wonder how long I could make this awkward period of time. Money. Money. <laughs> need a glass of water for this one. You might too. I'm just kidding. I want to give you some, some thoughts here. We are talking about money this morning, but I want to just set the record straight on a few things in case you're getting a little bit nervous. I want you to know something about Hagerstown Church. This is a giving church. This is a generous, generous church. I'm not intending this morning to straighten you all out. And reveal to you this morning that we need you to increase your giving right now. That's not the case. And so thank you for being a generous church. Thank you for making a sermon like this morning as we open the word of God and we discuss what the Lord requires of us in the area of finances. Thanks for being, well, generous. So that this sermon can be easy for me, not that that's what my job is all about, or your job in relation to me, but I'm thankful. This is a giving church. Another thing I want you to know right at the beginning of this sermon is that we are not facing financial difficulty. I've not been asked by Pastor Chris or the finance committee to preach a sermon on finances because we're in the red and we need to get some more giving going. That's not what's taking place. I've not gotten any kind of a report from the finance committee that would send me into a panic. Actually, quite the opposite. We're meeting our budget. So this isn't a desperate attempt to balance the budget. This morning as we walk through our covenant, though, we do find ourselves on point number nine. It deals with resources and faithfulness. So if you have your copy of the prayer directory, you can find in the back of that the church member covenant, also in the hard black Bible in front of you, you can turn to the back. There's a half sheet front and back there. You're welcome to take that or just take a glance at it. We're on point number nine. It will also be on the screen for you. So you can read it out of your prayer directory, out of the, uh, off the Internet. It's even on our website under What We Believe. It should be on the screen as well. And I, I want to do something that we should have been doing from the beginning, and I made the mistake of not doing it. But I want us to say point number nine together. And so if we can get the main idea this morning up on the screen... It's point number nine out of our membership covenant. I want you to read this with me. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. What a promise that we're making each other. What a promise that we've been commanded by God to make one another and to make to him we consider this main idea that we'll work to unpack this morning, I thought about a lot of vivid illustrations of this very thing taking place historically, taking place in the local church. My mind immediately went to Acts chapter 2. The early church had begun to sell their possessions. They had all things in common They were supporting the ministry. They were giving to the expenses of the church. They were giving to the relief of the poor, and they were giving to the spread of the gospel. We were doing all of these things. It's quite an incredible story. Another passage I thought of, and it's the one I chose this morning for us to take a look at, is in 2 Corinthians. So if you have your copy of God's Word, or you're welcome to use a copy there in front of you, the Black Bible, you're welcome to grab that. I want to to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians Chapter eight. 2 Corinthians chapter eight. For' using the hard black, back Bible, in, or black Bible in front of you, it's page 11:49. 11:49. In chapters eight and nine of this book, the Apostle Paul is exhorting. He's challenging the Corinthian church to complete their contribution toward the collection of the poor for the saints in Jerusalem. And he's saying, hey, I'm coming by soon. I'll be there. And what I would like for you guys to do, you've, you've made this promise. You've, you've, you've said that you wanted to give to the needs of the, of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And I want you to know I'm going to be coming by there shortly. And so if you could, just to kind of expedite the process, could you go ahead and have that gift ready so that when I get there, I won't have to, well, wrestle it out of you. I won't have to wait around for you to gather it up. I'll be honestly just surprised and excited that you've already prepared it for me. So he says, go ahead and and do that. The Christians had planned there in Corinth. They had planned to take up this offering. And, And that was not only encouraging to the Apostle Paul that he had heard it, but it was also encouraging to other churches in other regions. One of those regions was Macedonia. By way of encouragement and stimulation, though, the Apostle Paul points to the Macedonian churches and he says, they heard about you and what you guys were doing for the church there in Jerusalem. And he says, and they decided to do the exact same thing. Maybe you're wondering, well, who are the Macedonian churches? Well, the Macedonian churches are several churches, but they're a church in Philippi where we have the letter written to them by the Apostle Paul also, the book of Philippians. Do you remember there what happened in Philippi? Just to kind of give you a placeholder, to help you understand what took place there in Philippi when Paul first came and preached the gospel and the church was planted. Remember, they were there in prison, Paul and Silas, and the Lord miraculously opened the gates, the doors, broke the chains. And really in that moment, as God miraculously demonstrated his power, the gospel went forth with even more power, and the church was born. That's Philippi. But you also have Thessalonica. It's a Macedonian church. And maybe you say, well, Thessalonica, well, what do we know about them? Well, Thessalonica, they also received two letters from the Apostle Paul, First and Second Thessalonians. You might say, well, what do we know about Thessalonica and this particular church? Well, this is where Paul and Silas were preaching in the synagogue and they were dragged out. They were there in the house of Jason. They were dragged out there and they were accused of turning the world upside down in Thessalonica. This is one of the Macedonian churches. Well, there's still yet one more Thess- or Macedonian church that we know about and that's the church of Berea. The Berean church. Maybe you'll remember it's said in Acts 17 of the, the church there in Berea that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they eagerly studied the Scriptures. Everything that Paul would say, they would open up their copies of God's Word and they would flip back and forth and they would try to determine is what he's saying actually true? And of course, it was. So these are the three churches there in Macedonia. And What do we know about them? Well, some things I've just shared, but we also know this. That the Christians living in Macedonia that comprised these local churches, they were experiencing intense poverty. Even to the point that Paul vividly expresses they were down to the depths of poverty. As if they couldn't get any more poor. They couldn't do without any more, is what Paul is saying. And their poverty, poverty really was, was coupled with and even maybe caused by Persecution. And social shun- shunning, as we see even in, in the, the account in Acts 16 and 17. Paul there in Thessalonica and even in Berea. And so these new Christian churches, they're suffering great poverty and persecution, and yet they're referenced to the Corinthian church, a, a far richer church. They're referenced as an example. And so listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about our brothers and sisters there in In all earnestness and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, now we just give pause, recognizing that your word is powerful. And we ask that you do a work in us, a powerful work. Father, this is a generous church. This is a church that loves you. This is a church that seeks to honor you with our finances, both corporately and finan- or and individually. And yet, Father, we know that there's a work that you want to do still yet greater than what you've already done. And so we pray that you would work in us what you worked in the Macedonian churches so long ago. And we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. One author here notes two stunning paradoxes when he considers this church, this group of churches. Two paradoxes. Joy in the midst of testing and affliction and generosity in spite of affliction and poverty. Think about those. Joy in the midst of testing and affliction and generosity in spite of affliction and poverty. They were able to have joy, though they were wrestling and struggling and suffering. And they were even able to joyfully give of their finances. In their great need, they saw the needs of others as more pressing and important. So we look at these few short verses, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8. We notice four things about the Macedonians' gift. I want to just highlight them for you briefly. We won't tarry long here. We'll move quickly. The Macedonian gift was, number one, generously sacrificed. Generously sacrificed. They they held little back. And they gave in spite of their need. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. They gave what they could. The Apostle Paul says, I testify I give you my word. They not only gave according to their means, but they gave beyond their means. How is that even possible? They gave more than they should have, Paul is saying. And they gave of their own accord. They generously, generously sacrificed for their brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. But not only did they generously sacrifice, but number two, it was an unprompted donation. It was an unprompted donation. The Apostle Paul, considering the the churches in Macedonia, considers and thinks, why would I even ask them? Of all the people that could give, they're not on the list. And yet when the Macedonian churches discovered what was taking place there in Jerusalem, they thought, we've got to give. We want to give. Paul, would you allow us to be a part? Why Why didn't you tell us about this? Why do we have to find out in some other way? Why, wouldn't you, why would you just rule us out like we couldn't help? Would you please accept this? Would you, ex- ex- would you accept this small gift? The small gift in their eyes that the Apostle Paul says is no small gift. It was an incredible gift in the Apostle Paul's eyes. And so they generously sacrificed in verse 3. And they also gave this sacrifice in an unprompted, unsolicited manner. Verse 4 tells us about their sacrifice that it was a resolute offer. They begged us earnestly, it says in verse 4, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged us earnestly. They contended. They were contentious. Why? To what end? So that they would have the privilege, the grace, the joy, the blessing of taking part in the relief of the church there in Jerusalem. And they, weren't, they wouldn't take no for an answer. We've all been in that situation. Somebody extends you something. No, I, I, don't, I don't need that. I don't require that. No, I insist, they say. Almost getting a little bit rowdy, this church. They won't take no for an answer. But the fourth thing we notice in verse 5... Is that it was a standing invitation of sorts. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Have you ever been to somebody's home and they say, come again anytime as you leave? They don't really mean it. It's a lie. They don't want you to come anytime. Maybe sometime. Maybe specific times. They don't want you to just come anytime. Anytime. And yet, we've heard that it's been said to us, we say it to other people, and maybe at times we are, to be serious, disingenuous. But what we see here in verse five is a standing invitation of sorts. They're saying to the Apostle Paul, they're saying to the church in, in Jerusalem, they're saying, hey, we've given ourselves to God and we've given ourselves to you. What we have is yours. My kasa is su casa, right? What I have is yours. What's what's mine is yours. We've given ourselves to you. These brothers and sisters were cheerfully sacrificing everything that they had. Whatever was needed, they'd given themselves to God. They'd given themselves to the churches at large. Maybe you're asking this morning, how does a church like that, going through what they're going through, How do they get to the place where they're able to be such a cheerful, generous giver? How do they get to that point? In light of their poverty, in light of their struggles, you would think that they would be the worst. You think that they may give the least. And yet it's almost as if the, the Apostle Paul is thinking like our Lord Jesus who says... Of that widow who gave so little that she had still given so, so much. In our fallen state, we think more of our own wants than we think of the needs of our brothers and sisters. This is often the case. And yet we see through sanctification, we see through the work of the Spirit in our lives that that's being changed. And yet there's still part of us that wants to hold things for ourselves. There's still a part of us deep down that that sees our needs, our wants, our desires, our condition as more pressing and important than the needs of others. We desire often to stack up coin while others languish. And so the question maybe you're asking, I know it's the question that I'm asking of my own heart. How does one fight this sinful urge? How does Hagerstown Church, both individually and collectively, how do we work to grow in this area, to give sacrificially, to give ourselves in the same way that these dear brothers and sisters did so many years ago? Well, if you're asking that question, you are in luck. Because by the inspiration of, our, of the Holy Spirit, through this scripture, he gives us four instructions on giving. And it's not in, the, uh, in regard to amount or even to timing. But it gets to a deeper, deeper issue. There's four instructions that have been given to us by illustration and demonstration of the Macedonian church. And then later Paul's instructions. The first uh, two are this. Give yourself to God and give yourself to others. We see this there in chapter 8. Give yourself to God and give yourself to others. Number three and four we'll see in chapter nine. Give expecting to receive and give out of a cheerful heart. And so four instructions on giving. One, give yourself to God. Two, give yourself to others. Three, give expecting to receive. And four, give out of a cheerful heart. Let's walk through these briefly this morning. The first one, give yourself God. This is exactly what we read. The description is given to us in verse 5 of chapter 8. And this, not as we expected, the apostle says, but they, speaking of the Macedonians, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Understand that the giving that this church or this group of people, this giving was a surrender of self, it was a devotion to God. It was not divorced from their salvation experience as they turned from their sins and gave themselves to God, throwing themselves on his graces, asking for forgiveness, determining for themselves in their souls and in their inner beings that he would not only be their God, but he would be their Lord. They gave themselves to God. And they continued in that act. Exodus chapter 20 You're welcome to turn there. Potentially, it'll be on the screen for you this morning. Exodus 20, verses one through three. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus, speaking in Mark 12, not divorced from Exodus 20, using that even as an understanding and a groundwork for this important teaching, he answers a question. What's the greatest commandment? And he says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Church at Macedonia, they learned quickly there were to be no other gods in their lives. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they knew what Jesus taught us in Mark chapter or Matthew chapter six, rather, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus makes the application of Exodus chapter 20 and Mark chapter 12 by saying, There are other gods that would be worshipped in your life. There are other idols or lowercase gods that would steal your affection and Jesus says, make no mistake, you cannot serve God and serve money. It's one or the other. We see that the church in Macedonia, these small local churches, that they had in fact given themselves first to God. It was evident in their lives. Maybe we could just turn the question on our, on us this morning. Have you given yourself first to God? To what have you given yourself to? If we were to think in the area of with this idea of, of priorities, what comes first in your life? When we think about finances, what do you pay first? What comes first in your life? Generally speaking, at which altar do you worship? To what, to who have you given yourself to? It follows. It makes sense that we must first give ourselves to God. If the house belongs to God, so do all of the belongings inside of it. If you have given yourself to God, of course, this comes first because then everything else inside follows. You might say, well, Pastor Josh, I really don't know. Potentially, I have not given myself first to God. Well, one of the ways that you could work to answer that question is by asking your accountant. You can ask your accountant if you have any idols. They are the most, of all the people in your life, they are most acquainted with your idols. It's difficult to give your checkbook to God when he doesn't even have your heart first. But when the Lord has your heart, everything else goes with it. It'll be obvious that he has your heart because you'll demonstrate it by giving him your checkbook. And when he has your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, he has all of you. And there's nothing left. The Macedonians didn't have much to give. But everything that they did have, it was God's. Why? Because they had given themselves first to God. And so I don't know who you are, whether you're a member of the church, whether this is your first time in here this morning, everybody in between, I'm going to ask you this. Before you give one more cent to the church, I want to invite you to give yourself to God. Humble yourself. God doesn't want your money, nor does he need it. He wants you to give yourself to him. What a beautiful picture that we see here for the Macedonians. They gave themselves first to God. By way of transition, let me offer you this. At at this point in time, it doesn't seem too painful when we consider our our money, when we consider our checkbook, because when we think of giving ourselves to God, we think, well, this is someone, this is a a person, this is a, a, a force that has everything. He lacks nothing. What does God really need? He won't be a mooch to me. He needs nothing. He owns it all. And so I'll give myself to God. Yes, up until this point, it is convenient and comfortable. But our Lord, he commanded we, his church, to go beyond loving him and giving ourselves to him. But he called us past that to demonstrate our love for him by loving others. We demonstrate our love for our God by loving our neighbors. And while our God is never in need, our neighbors often are. And this is where we see the second point. The second observation from the life of this Macedonian body of believers is that they gave themselves to others. And so should we. And so give yourselves to God and give yourselves to others. That's what it says in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they... Gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. We don't need to spend too much time here. It makes perfect sense. It's the natural, dare I say, automatic next step in the life of a believer who has given themselves to God to naturally give themselves to others. Jesus speaking to his disciples said almost this very thing. In John chapter 13, he says, By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, he's saying, if, if, if you want other people to really know that you've given yourself to me, then demonstrate that by giving yourself to others. Maybe you could say in the negative. You're not truly a disciple of Jesus if you don't truly have love for others. You've not truly given yourself to the Lord if you've not given yourselves to the church how can one love the lord but not be burdened for what he loves when we love god when our hearts have been captured when our minds have been renewed when we're submitting to the things that god has called us to submit to we'll demonstrate that by caring about what he cares about maybe just for exercise We could ask ourselves this morning, what does God care about? We don't have to look farther than our bullet point, our main idea this morning, the portion of the covenant that we're discussing. To what should we give cheerfully and regularly? One, to the support of ministry of the the ministry; two, the expenses of the church; three, the relief of the four of the poor; and four, the spread of the gospel to all nations. What does it mean to support the ministry? Well, the ministry is the work that we do as a church. It's the service that we provide, not to to ourselves as just end users, but it's the work that we do together. It's the pulpit ministry, it's the music ministry, it's the kids' ministry, it's the membership gatherings, it's our D groups and our life groups, it's our men's and women's prayer breakfasts, it's our book studies, support of the ministry. What are the expenses of the church? Well, it's the maintenance of our real estate. It's the bills that come due on a monthly basis. And yes, there are real bills that come due. Does God care about this? Of course he does. And so we've committed ourselves to giving cheerfully and regularly to the expenses of the church. But more than that, to to the relief of the poor. Just as in Macedonia, there is no shortage of poverty in our area. There are many, many who are in need And while the question remains is what is the best way to help, the question is not should we help or should we contribute. That's been settled. While the main priority of the church is not to deliver the poor from poverty, poverty, it is part of our job to relieve them. Our Lord has commanded us to do so. And finally, and most importantly, we're to give to the spread of the gospel through all nations. What does God care about? He cares about the spread of the gospel through all nations. This was his command that he gave to the church. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've all been given that call to go into the world and to preach the gospel. And and each of us are called. Each of us must have a handle on this. Each of us must contribute. And it's been said, and I think I agree with it you're either a goer or a sender. Which is it? There's no middle position. We either go or we send. In some way, through our time, our talent, or our treasures, we contribute to these four things. What does God care about? He cares about these. Why do we give to these things? Because God cares about them. And so we give, and we have given, and we'll continue to give sacrificially and generously. I'm proud to know that so many of you are personally giving to to mission agencies on behalf of their staff and, and many other countries. It really is a joy to see that when I think of the generosity of this body of believers, I'm not just saying what comes in the plates on Sunday mornings that we don't pass. But I also, just by God's kindness, am privy to some of you and what you've been giving, how you've been sacrificing to send and even to prepare to go. You can be sure that on a corporate level, Hagerstown Church, its elders, its committees, its members, we are working together hard to spend our resources in these areas because God cares about them. Every year we work to ensure that money is, that we spend is in line with the priorities of the mission of our God, the God that has given us these four priorities. We've got to work hard here. We have to hold each other accountable. We must remain committed to these priorities on a regular basis. And if that's true on a corporate level, it, it's no less true on an individual level as well. And so collectively, we're doing well. Individually, the question I would ask of myself, and it's been painful, and I'd ask of you, are you giving to what God cares about? Have you given yourself to God? Maybe yes, but have you now then followed that up with giving yourselves to others? And demonstrating your care for God, your love for God by giving to the things that he cares about. Maybe a helpful exercise would be to ask yourself how much of your personal budget, your personal investment strategy is spent on these items that God cares about. Some of it you'll see in direct ways, others in indirect ways. I think it'd be a good exercise. And maybe even to ask somebody in your life group or D group, maybe one of your pastors to help you think about this. At any rate, give yourself to God and give yourself to others. This is what we see happening in this Macedonian church. Paul is saying, he's lifting them them up to both the Corinthians and to us. He's saying, hey, be like them. Give yourself to God. Give yourself to others. Hold nothing back. When you give yourself to God, When you give yourself to others, generosity will mark you. But Paul gives us more than that. There's so many principles that he gives us here in these few short verses of chapter 8 and chapter 9, but two principles or two instructions we've already looked at. Let's look at two more in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul is no longer referencing the Macedonian churches, but he's continuing to talk straight to the Corinthians, and he gives us a third piece of instruction to consider as we give. As I believe the Macedonians gave as well. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he says this The point is this whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that Having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The third piece of instruction the apostle gives to us by way of this chapter is to give expecting to receive. Give expecting to receive. If there's a fun part of the sermon this morning, as you listen, it's probably this one. Give expecting to receive. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Well, children, boys and girls, men and women of all ages, it is a natural law of God that flows from the very nature of God that what you give, you will receive. When you give, you will receive. And that when you sow little, you reap little. And when you sow much, you receive much. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. In what way? To what end? Well, good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be put into your lap. Maybe one way to think of what this would look like is taking a soda that seems tame, under control, shaking it up, squeezing it as much as you can, and then popping the lid and letting it roll over on your lap. This is what God says will happen to you. Not too appealing, right? But financially speaking, what you give will be given back to you in greater measure. And this isn't just a principle that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 6. It's something that we see clearly throughout the Old Testament even. In Proverbs chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, the scriptures tell us this One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Sounds like a riddle. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. How do we know this is true? We can see it from experience. And we see these very truths flowing from the nature of God. It's how this world works. Give and it shall be given. But I want you to beware. This is potentially the most exciting point of the sermon thus far. But I want you to know this. That if you haven't first given yourself to God, this piece of instruction will lead to nothing more than unfettered idolatry. Idolatry is placing something before God. So if your goal is to get what God offers and not to give yourself to God and then thereby to receive him, you're committing idolatry. You say, well, will this principle work on its own? Will this principle work without me first giving myself to God? Yes, indeed it will. God is just as faithful to this as he is to gravity. What goes up must come down, and yet it will lead you to unfettered idolatry. The one who gives, yes, he will grow all the richer, and the one who waters will himself be watered. But brothers and sisters, beware. Give yourself first to God. This promise, this principle that God makes clear to us is not a get-rich quick scheme the idea here throughout chapter eight and nine the main word that's used the most is the word grace grace or in the Greek charis it's used in several different ways and it's translated several ways as well and so you may say well I see other words maybe listed more yes but the underlying Greek word is all the same It's used in a couple different ways. One way, it's referring to to either God's unconditional kindness, lavishly displayed, or to God's enablement, especially in his enablement, to participate worthily in the collection. In other words, it's the reaping that you will receive. It will always include the opportunity to give more. And that in itself is a grace. The ability to give, the opportunity to give is itself a return on your investment. That you were able to give a little bit will return in you being able to give even more. And so that's one way, a grace, an opportunity to participate in what God is doing. Another way is it's a privilege. This word grace can be translated as privilege or a favor. of Again, the opportunity to participate in this offering, to participate in the suffering it's an act of grace denoting that it's, it's a charitable act to, to be able to give to somebody is itself an act of grace. And there's several other ways that it's used. How does this idea of grace, of this being able to participate, to reap the benefit of being able to give more, how does that connect with the prosperity gospel? Brothers and sisters, it does not. It's interesting that Paul He understands that God's grace given to the Macedonians, it doesn't lighten their affliction, it doesn't remove their poverty even. You see, the work that God is doing in and through them, the benefit that they receive, the bit that they sowed and they reaped even more, it doesn't remove them from poverty. Notice that. The blessings the grace that they receive in return doesn't free them from the difficulties of this life as the prosperity gospel would promise. The scriptures say, for we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So instead of saying that God, because we give a little, will free us from every burden that we'll ever face. It instead demonstrates that, no, the the blessings of God come back to us will open our hearts and minds. It will even open our purse strings even more. So really, this picture, this idea, this, this story serves as a refutation of the prosperity gospel. These brothers and sisters were blessed They sowed and they reaped bountifully. And in what ways? They reaped in in ways of sanctification. They received the blessing of poverty even. It didn't prompt them to open their hearts or to, to close their hearts and to close their hands but to open them up with greater generosity. When you think about this idea of blessing or giving and receiving, of sowing and reaping, you might think, well, right now in my life and maybe even in, my, in the culture of this church, maybe you think, well, we're a poor church. And if we give more, then we'll not be a poor church anymore. And this idea of rich church, poor church makes me think of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to several local churches, one particularly there in Revelation 3, speaking to the church at Laodicea, verses 14 to 18. This is what he, he sends to them. And to the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, church, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched. Pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve on or to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The warning goes to us that sometimes physical riches cloak spiritual poverty. Some may look around this church and think, oh, look at the stained glass windows. Look at the fresh coat of paint on the parking lot and the walls. Those things are wonderful and great. And indeed, they're blessings from God. But physical riches, physical blessings can often cloak spiritual poverty. And I don't believe it's true of this body of believers. And yet the warning still comes to us. That though we may be physically rich, that does not indicate our spiritual poverty. State, And if sometimes physical riches can cloak spiritual poverty, the opposite would also be true. Sometimes physical poverty can cloak spiritual riches. Laodicea, this church, they considered themselves rich and prospering, but the Lord looked at it and said, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. If you go back one chapter, the word of Jesus comes to another church, the church in Smyrna. Also plagued with, with poverty, just like the Macedonian churches. And what does it say of them? That though they are poor, spiritually speaking, they are rich. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful when we consider the reaping and the sowing. The blessings of God, to realize that the blessings of God, the gifts of God are far greater than financial physical resources. This is what we see in these churches. There's nothing wrong with being blessed financially, but even more so, when we give, we recognize that God is using the gifts that we give to multiply and work our own sanctification and to grow us into the image of Christ, who carried no money in his purse and yet was the richest man who ever walked the face of this earth. When it comes to giving to the church investment strategy, there's no higher level of security and promise than when we give to the things that God cares about. We know it's the surest investment to give to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Why? Because it's the surest and highest rate of return. His word... The word that comes out of God's mouth in connection with these things, they will not return void. And so when we give to the church, when we give to those in need, we may see no physical return. We may not even see any physical fruit. But we know this, as sure as the sun rose this morning... The word of God that goes forth, that calls us to do these things, it will, in fact, bear fruit. This is why we work hard in our church's investment strategy to, to invest in the things that God cares about, that he promised would give a return, not just physically, but in our own spiritual lives as well. And If this is true of our corporate budget, let's also consider our personal budgets as well. There's no empty return when we invest in the things of God. It's the strongest investment that we can consider. It will accomplish what he intends for it to accomplish. It will bear fruit. It will prosper. Are you giving to these things? Give and it will be given to you. The scriptures teach us. Those who reap or sow sparingly will reap sparingly and those who so bountifully will reap bountifully the scriptures teach us. So we've looked at three instructions this morning, three helpful pieces of information. First, that we should give ourselves to God. It's so challenging when we haven't given ourselves to God, but we consider this third instruction, this law of giving and receiving. We're to give ourselves to God first, we're to give ourselves to others. And then with that framework, with that foundation established, we are to give expecting to receive. And lastly, I'll point out this morning from this passage of Scripture, number four, we are to give out of a cheerful heart. Give out of a cheerful heart. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful heart giver. There's really two options here as we think of cheerful heart. As we think of verse 7. We can either give reluctantly, as the scripture says, which literally means to give with grief, to give with a sad face, with sorrow or sadness. Giving the impression of depression or regret. Holding on to that envelope as you are about to drop it into the box. Holding that Envelope of money as you hand it to those people in need, holding on a little bit tighter and longer than you think you should, hovering over that button there on that website. You can give reluctantly, out of necessity in a way that maybe is even connected with legalism, hoping that you'll then receive something from God. Again, that's divorced from the point number one, giving yourself to God. But the other option is to give cheerfully. Not reluctantly, but cheerfully. It is funny that the word cheerful here, the underlying word, is the same word as hilarious. Maybe you've heard it before that God loves a cheerful giver, but he also loves a hilarious giver. And no, we're not that type of church, holy rollers, laughing as we give our gifts, but we do want to do this. We know this, that the scripture is teaching us not to laugh uncontrollably, but to be excited about the opportunity to give. How do you imagine that Jesus gave his great gift to you? How do you imagine unbeliever, non-Christian, how do you imagine God looking at you and saying, here is my son, I'll give him to you reluctantly? Discouraged as I hand him to you, holding on to his blood a little longer than I should. This is not how we've received Christ. This is not the offer of the gospel that's extended to you this morning. No, God joyfully, willingly, sacrificially demonstrates his love for us as he sends his son. And speaking of the Son, how do we imagine Jesus giving himself for us? Well, Ephesians, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2 tells us very clearly, looking unto Jesus, the scriptures say, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not the same thing. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It was a difficulty, physically speaking, for him to lay his life down for us, to humble himself for us. And yet it says, of our Lord, our Savior, for the joy that was set before him, he endured this painful, difficult task. How does he sacrifice for us? With joy. Cheerfully. Are there any... Examples aside from our Lord in the in the scriptures. Well, we see some in the New Testament, but we also see one particular in the Old Testament that I'll highlight for you this morning, and that's free will offerings. In the Old Testament, we, we see these free will offerings of money or even materials that were given by God's chosen people, and they're given for the purpose of building and constructing the tabernacle. We see this in Exodus chapter 25, 34, and in other passages as well. The people of God, they gave to God freely of what he had blessed them with. They gave freely. They gave cheerfully. It is funny that the children of Israel, it says that they gave so graciously, so faithfully. They gave so much that literally they had to be asked to stop giving to this offering. They'd given so much, they were so excited about taking these things that God had given to them and giving them back to God. They walked out of Egypt with not a dime to their name, and yet they plundered Egypt. The Lord turned the hearts of the Egyptians So that they would literally beg the Israelites to take their gold, to take their silver, to take their jewels, to take their precious things, and to just leave. Supernaturally, God gave them these things. And now they're in the wilderness with all of these riches, God says, would you give back to me? And they do so joyfully. Fresh on their minds, What God had given to them, they gave back. And so how do we give joyfully? Well, we consider what he has given to us. We look to the face of Christ, looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him gave so much. And how how are we to give joyfully? We're to look to the face of Christ and see what he's given to you. Allow this point to do one of two things. One, Let it be a stimulation for your giving. Thinking of all the blessings, all the grace that God has bestowed on you individually, on us collectively, and allow that to foster a joy in our hearts that would lead us to give generously and hilariously. When we joyfully give, by the way, church, we mirror Jesus. When we joyfully give, we look like our master. And that's one way you could use this point. Another way is to, to let it be a test. To ask yourself, if giving is difficult for you, why? Perhaps it's because you haven't first given yourself to God. And this really is a chore. To attempt to give joyfully and sacrificially is a chore if you haven't first given yourself to God. It's frustrating. It'll leave you miserable. And so first, if this is difficult for you, if you're not able to give joyfully... Well, then consider the first instruction. Have you given yourself to God? The command to give when your heart is not first given to God, it will not leave you with joy. It will leave you with grief. And So when you consider all that Christ has done for you, let me ask you, church, does this not spring up within you a joyous desire to give to others? He's given to us so that we would give to others. He joyfully did that so that we also would experience this great joy. And so, church, give out of the overflow of what he has given you. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because that is precisely what God is. He himself is a cheerful giver. And so, church, continue to be a cheerful giver. Continue to be a sacrificial giver. Continue to give to others. Continue to give yourself to God. I want to end our time this morning just by looking at the last verse in chapter 9. I'll read it for you aloud this morning. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We can't even describe it. We've tried and we can't. Let's think about it and see where that leads us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've reminded us this morning of all that we ourselves have been given. You've been so generous to us. You ask nothing in return. And yet those who have given their hearts to you will joyfully give everything else. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in this matter. We pray that you would use the Scripture this morning to challenge us to be more like Christ. Father, not to give a dollar amount, to enter into some safe zone of percentages, Father, we pray that we would give ourselves to you, all of it. That we would see every item line as a way of fulfilling your commands and desires for us. That we would see every dollar spent as a way of us joyfully emulating our Savior. Investing in the things that he cares about. Father, we thank you that you have invested in us. That you have given us this gift that we can't describe And we could never truly, exhaustively model for others. But in some small way, you've allowed us to be a part of imaging Jesus in this world, using us as a conduit. May we be great, generous, sacrificial givers. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone, amen. Church, I wanna invite you to stand. Before we sing, I wanna ask you two questions and I really want you to answer them. Has he given to us? has he given to you and is he is he worthy